My name is Tatiana Calderon. I am Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Democracy Forward. Democracy Forward is a national legal organization that uses the law to build collective power and advance a bold, vibrant democracy through pro bono litigation, policy education, and regulatory advancement. And I'm excited to introduce the panelists, which you saw on the video, um, but I will uh, share a little bit more about them. Let's start with Olivia. Olivia is the Director of Politics and Government Affairs at Gen Z for Change. She's a young abortion rights activist from Houston who catapulted onto the national stage after raising $2.3 million for abortion funds in response to online bullying by a sitting member of Congress. Olivia famously initiated the takedown of a whistleblower website that targeted Texans who aided abortion access. And she is harnessing the power of social media to drive progressive change and hold those in power accountable. Next, we have Sky Perryman. Sky is a lawyer, advocate, and go-to strategist with a record of winning high stakes legal and policy fights for people and communities. Her record includes challenging the Pence-Kobach Voter Commission, leading to the commission's shutdown scoring victories for civil rights plaintiffs, and overseeing the legal and policy strategy in the COVID-19 pandemic that led to the distribution of medication abortion by mail. And in the months following January 6, 2021, Sky was named president and CEO of Democracy Forward, where she's leading an expansion of the organization's work to fight far-right extremism and meet this new era in the courts. And last but not least, we have Taylor Coleman, who is a seventh generation Texan, van lifer, and voting rights activist. She lives on the road full time in her van named Barb, who you will see soon, um, and who is named after her hero, Barbara Jordan. And she travels around the state of Texas registering voters to shine a light on all of the obstacles that make Texas the hardest state to cast a ballot. And then you may notice that um, State Rep. Sean Theory is not on the stage this afternoon. Sky, you spoke with, with Rep. Theory. Can you share your update from Yes. Her? Well, we are having South by Southwest in the shadows of the Texas Capitol, which is, of course, where Barbara Jordan also um, went to work. And um, Sean Theory is there today, unexpectedly, um, was not able to come um, to the stage this afternoon because she is um, participating in a hearing that's incredibly important um, in response to Uvalde and to promote um, education safety. So I think we we all would agree that we want Rep Theory there, um, and we're sorry that she can't be here on the panel. She will be at a reception after, which we're, we're happy to provide information for, for anyone that wants to stop by. All right. We'll miss her, but we're grateful for the important work she's doing. So let's get started. You are all very proud Texans that have become fast friends and partners in your work. And as you've all gotten to know each other, you very quickly realize that you each have a Barbara Jordan story and that you draw inspiration from her work and you've bonded over that. So to get us started, can each of you share your Barbara Jordan story and share how she inspires you to do the work that you do today? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, Barbara Jordan, I'm, I'm from Third Ward, Houston, which is, um, you know, the same neighborhood where uh, her dad uh, pastored at a church. And, you know, she's kind of the pride of Houston. So I feel like I sort of grew up 
with that history. And when I decided um, to move into a van and, you know, that voter registration was going to be part of the work that I did, um, you know, her work on the uh, voter registration, um, the, the, the bill that she was able to pass to expand the franchise for millions of Americans, uh, decades before that, she started by registering voters in her neighborhood. Um, and so I was so honored to be able to sort of look to her for inspiration uh, growing up as a little girl in her neighborhood. Um, and she just sort of provides the blueprint uh, of the work that I do now. I grew up in Waco, Texas, um, which has many wonderful things, but also was the heart of a lot of religious right extremism. Um, and so as a young girl, I was a little bit more interested in how I could make a change um, than I was in some of the things that maybe other young people in elementary school and junior high <laughs> are interested in. And so I had three aunts who were educators in Houston, public school educators in Houston, that introduced me to the work Barbara Jordan was doing as sort of an inspiration, um, as someone to uh, potentially be able to emulate and to understand that not all um, young girls are, you know, interested in, you know, not all young girls are putting on necessarily makeup and things at sleepovers, but some really at an early age want to change the world. And so she's always been um, an inspiration to me. When she passed away, the Austin American Statesman ran a um, political uh, cartoon that had her looking over the Constitution, or had a person looking over the Constitution saying, I'm so sorry about one of your best friends, and holding her obit. And my mom um, had tore that out of the paper, and it stayed on my junior high and high school wall um, and, and still in my office today. And I'll just say before we get to Olivia that Taylor and I actually got to know each other over our um, love of Barbara Jordan. When I saw about the work she was doing, um, we connected and met for a dinner and talked about it in that sort of... The rest, was this, the rest was history. So, um, so that's my yeah. other Barbara Jordan story. Yeah. I, I grew up in a very small rural town south of Houston, and one day, me and my dad were driving around in um, a, a more rural part of town. Even now, to this day, it is a very segregated city where I grew up. And we drove by, or we drove by this blue building that I had seen every day riding the school bus to school, and. It had this woman's name on it. And one day I was driving by it with my dad, and I finally looked over. I was like, Dad, who is Barbara Jordan? And I'll blame the Texas public education system for that, because this was my junior year of high school. <laughs> and my dad, who is a lifelong Republican, said, Barbara Jordan is one of the greatest politicians that this state has ever produced. And I immediately went home, and I started looking her up and reading about what she was doing or what she had done in her career, and I was like, oh, my God, this woman was incredible. And I did all this research, and the next day happened to be my AP English literature exam. And uh, it was during COVID, so I was at home in my bedroom on my computer, and the assignment was they were going to give you a person in history and you had to write about what they accomplished. And this is a completely randomly generated person that you'd be assigned that day. And I was assigned Barbara Jordan. <laughs> Thankfully, I had done the homework. Um, and I got a four out of five on that exam. So. So. To honor her legacy, we're going to recall some of the really powerful statements that she made. 
one, she once said that the stakes are too high for government to be a spectator sport. So with that in mind, we are going to talk about what some of the greatest threats to democracy are today and how you are all defending democracy in spite of these threats. And Taylor, we'll start with you. Um, we've all seen how voter suppression and disenfranchisement continues to threaten one of the most basic aspects of democracy, people's ability to vote their voice. Can you talk about your work with your van, Barb, and how you take power directly to people? Um, yeah, I think that's such a, a, a good question, or I, I should say, you know, her comment about it not being a spectator sport. You know, when I bought the van with the intent of, you know, doing van life, this was during the pandemic, I think we were all kind of losing our minds. Uh, and, you know, I didn't really have the plan, you know, it wasn't my original intention to say, oh, I'm going to do voter registration um, for this. And then um, January 6th happened. And then shortly after that, you had a uh, onslaught of bills that were passed uh, in the Texas legislature that were going to make it much harder to vote. Um, and of course, the Texas Democrats fled the state uh, to try to stop that. And so all of this is happening. And at this time, I was working on the van myself, you know, trying to build it out. and was just so frustrated, you know. And, um, you know, then finally, when right when I'm moving into the van, the John Lewis um, voting rights bill had failed in the Senate. And there had been all these conversations about, you know, why it wasn't necessarily needed. You know, black turnout is through the roof. It's clear that, you know, this isn't an, an issue anymore. And, you know, when I said that, you know, I was going to do voter registration here in Texas. It's very difficult to do that. You know, in 254 counties, you have to get permission in each county to register a voter. Uh, the laws are such here that the freedom rides uh, would have been illegal. You have to be a Texas resident to help people register to vote. Um, so I feel like when it comes to um, this work not being a spectator sport, uh, a lot of times it can feel like what difference can one person make. Um, but I feel like shining a light, going through all of these counties, um, showing how nonsensical some of these rules are, um, if it can make one person think, if I can convince one member of Congress that it's kind of insane that somebody 18 years old can go online and start a bank account, but they can't register to vote, um, then, you know, I think that that makes an impact. And I feel like, you know, we have different tools than um, Barbara Jordan had, you know, when she was, um, you know, impacting legislation in the way that uh, she was. But I feel like each of these tools, each, each one of us can have a small impact, um, you know, with these sorts of things that we see each day. Sky and Olivia, same question for you. What do you think are the greatest threats to democracy and how are you confronting them? Well, I'll say I um, came to this work, I, I became a lawyer and um, always did a lot of public interest work in the corporate practice. And then after the 2016 election, left my practice in order to do um, mission-based and public interest work full-time because of this new era that we're in in American life that, of course, we know did not start or end with the 2016 election and January 6th. Um, you know, showed that, I think, very vividly. And so uh, one of the things that I think is um, 
a great threat is people not understanding our own power and the fact that we really are the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people in this country believe in the promise of democracy, but yet there has been a coordinated and highly resourced effort to, um, to make people feel like that they're alone or that they're in the minority or that they, um, um, you know, or they don't belong in some way. And so what we're doing at Democracy Forward um, is to use the law to build collective power. The courts, um, and we'll talk more about the courts, but, um, you know, many have skepticism about the ability of using the courts or all of our laws given what we have seen. But what we know is that if people show up, um, we can advance democracy and the fight for democracy. And so I think the greatest threats are, is this movement that does not represent the majority of the American people, but that is seeking through misinformation, through um, baseless litigation, through um, you know, cultural pressure to convince people that, um, that, that it does. And, that, um, and so we have to overcome that. White supremacy and far-right radicalization. I mean, voter, voter suppression in this country started with the, the founding of the KKK, which was founded with the intent of keeping black people from voting. And we see that echoed so much in so many of the different pieces of legislation that are put up now in this country. I mean, we see here in Texas, where they're closing down polling places and voting locations. You want to guess which neighborhoods they're doing it in? The predominantly POC neighborhoods. Um, and I think... People don't understand, you know, so often when we're talking about these things, it's a, it's a left or it's a right issue. And it's not, you know, when I call out someone like, oh, you're a Republican elected official, you're doing this, that's wrong. They're like, oh, yeah, whatever, you're a young kid. But if I say, oh, you're a white supremacist, they get mad and they fight and they get angry because they're doing things that are white supremacists. Why would you not call that out? And I think we're seeing that happen a lot here in Texas. Uh, Florida, where they just released a list of different organizations on college campuses that the state government wants to get rid of, and frats are okay as long as it's not in the Divine Nine. That's okay. I think it's, it's glaringly apparent, and people should be much more bold and upfront when talking about that, because if we don't, that is how we fall into fascism. Olivia, you've been really open about threats and online bullying that you've received from elected officials, including a sitting member of Congress and members of the Texas State Legislature. Can you um, tell us about how that has inspired your activism? I, I, love, I love Barbara Jordan for many reasons, um, but I think one of the things that draws me to her the most is the sheer volume of love she had for the state of Texas. And for me, that's really rooted in, and I say this all the time, is, you know, my family is from Mexico, and my dad always said growing up, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. And it would be a shame if I gave up on a state that my family has lived in for generations and Barbara Jordan has this quote, and I'm, I don't remember it exactly, but it has something to do with um, feeling like the soil of Texas gives her the feeling like she can accomplish anything as an individual. And for me, I see it as, you know, this is land that my ancestors cultivated as sharecroppers. They were literally in the soil of Texas, 
And I feel like that fight and power has been passed down into me where I can't give up on it because of people like Barbara Jordan and because of my family being here for so many different generations. And so when I have members of the state legislator, I mean, we're, ta we're talking people in the House, the Senate, a governor's gotten involved before, Attorney General Ken Paxton and me very publicly had a spat last year. And to me, it's, it's a reminder that individuals can have power even if they're not connected to systems of privilege, which I wasn't, you know. All these things started happening. I was an 18, 19 year old college student who was only able to go to school because of the American Rescue Plan. And now I have legislators who I'm literally being told in donor meetings are saying, she raised $100,000 for Texas Democrats. We need you to give us three because they're that afraid and concerned of the fact that young Texans now have someone that they can look and relate to, but they're also mobilizing through the power of social media and through being proud of where they come from. And so it motivates me like hell because, well, if you're, if you're this scared of me when you know I'm a sophomore in college, what's it gonna be like when I'm 25 years old and I'm old enough to run for Congress? Jordan sat on the House Judiciary Committee in Congress during the Nixon impeachment proceedings following the Watergate scandal. Can you describe the role that she played during this national crisis and how her legacy and leadership during that time supports calls for accountability today for those who seek to undermine democracy? Definitely want to hear your perspective on the legal <laughs> part, but I do have I have some thoughts on the accountability. Do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Well, I well when it comes to accountability, you know, and this is why I think that the voter registration part is so important to me because it's just the core of every measure of accountability that we can have um, with people who are in elected office. And so I think when you have um, folks in office who are able to draw their own maps uh, and, and choose their own voters, um, then they don't feel like they're accountable to us, which is why, you know, you see a lot of uh, the oppression and the legislation that we see coming out of our own state, uh, you know. And, you know, while suppression is, is a part of that, um, you know, making sure that people are disillusioned enough not to participate um, is, is a big factor into that. And so, you know, it's so funny, I was in the Uber ride over here, and uh, my Uber driver asked, you know, what the panel was going to be about, and it, accountability came up. And, you know, it's, it is, you know, making sure that folks understand that um, if they are in office, they are, you know, passing these laws that censor um, our teachers um, and are taking books out of our classrooms and are siding with white supremacist organizations and, you know, calling January 6th a, 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 a tour group, which I, just the height of offensiveness. If they feel like we can't hold them accountable, then nothing is going to change. Um, so I think that that accountability, um, you know, Barbara Jordan, you know, her, her voice inspired so many, um, but it was really her words and showing that, 
you can't just claim to believe in the Constitution and our founders when you want to. And that accountability measure is going to always be there. Um, so I think it's very important for us to, to play our part in, in holding these folks accountable. Well, I, I, that's great. I think there's sort of two other pieces. One, she was not that old when she um, um, when she made the uh, statement at the House Judiciary Committee. And in fact, one of the reasons that the United that everyone in the country got to hear her words that day was because because she was a more junior member. The way the timing slated um, at the committee. And because of network news, uh, she ended up coming on people's news sets that night. And um, and I think that that's one piece is to uh, be able to show up and not um, let maybe your lack of years of experience or um, where you grew up or how you grew up um, uh, provide a barrier to embracing what we know the promise of democracy is. And so that was something that's always inspired me about those hearings, as well as her statement, which we played some of on the video, um, you know, about her faith in the Constitution being whole and complete, and to have a person that had been excluded um, and disenfranchised as a result of her gender and as a result of her race and as a result of her geography. Um, because she grew up in the Jim Crow South, be able to express that confidence at a time when so much was on the line, I have always found so incredibly inspiring, and I think it brings us to where we are today, where we look at all of the threats that we're seeing to democracy, the fact that the United States Supreme Court has rolled back a constitutional right for a generation of Americans, and it's not just been, um, it's not just been in the Dobbs decision, it's across a range of issues we see this. And it's really now to harness that belief that you're not going to let anyone speak for what the Constitution should mean and what the promise of democracy means, even when there's a powerful movement that's trying to stack the deck against where we all know we need to be. And so that those words have always been so um, important to me in my work and in my legal practice, but I think in this moment, they're especially important. Because if Barbara Jordan can sit in the House Judiciary Committee as a junior member and make that statement about our Constitution and our laws and our democracy, we can muster up a little bit of hope and a little bit of determination and figure out how we take the next step as opposed to doom scrolling and not being able to mobilize for change. That's such a good point. If I could add one more thing, Tatiana, you know, as we think about accountability, every piece of progress we've had in this country was regular Americans holding this country accountable to the promises that it's, that it's made to us, you know, uh, that we're all created equal, demanding the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. You know, these were all um, us pushing, everyday people pushing to, to hold America to the promise that it made uh, to all of us. And I think that we have to keep holding them accountable and demanding that they live up to uh, those first words, since they love to say, you know, when it comes to the Supreme Court, that they're following, you know, what the follow what the founders would have wanted for this country. Well, let's really follow what the founders would have wanted and make sure that we're uh, ensuring that everyone has access to all of those rights that were originally promised, all of us. 
Well, I would, I would love to read the quote that you both were just talking about um, that she made about the Constitution, just to kind of paint the broader picture. She said, my faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total, and I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. So, Sky, you were just talking about this. Despite growing up in the Jim Crow South, she repeatedly expressed her faith in the Constitution. And now today, and again, you, you kind of um, started talking about this just now, but there's so much cynicism about what the government can do or is doing and the ability to get things done, but also the courts, right? People feel like the courts are inaccessible and they're you know, watching the courts roll back rights um, and excluding women, people of color, disabled people, immigrants. So. The question is, what is the vision for the courts? Is there hope for the courts after what we've been seeing? I think to say that there's not is to deny our history. This isn't the first time that we've seen a Supreme Court um, not um, not uh, affirm all people or um, or be or protect people's constitutional rights. That is um, a part of American history, and it has been people um, working in movements. It has been lawyers working in courts, but also people demanding accountability for their government that has changed that tide. And so we have been here before. That does not mean that it's not incredibly, we believe it's a pivotal moment now um, and an inflection point. And the thing about inflection points is it can go really well or it can go really not well. And it's up to us in this moment to make sure that that inflection point, um, that we're really moving towards a, a bolder and vibrant uh, democracy. I'll say that in recent decades, I think that many have looked to the courts as a place to go for last resort, as the place you go to redress your grievances. And of course, that is what the courts should be. That is what they often are, even um, now. Uh, so, you know, um, and that is what, that's what they should be. But they are also a front line in the battle for democracy, because this um, uh, this very organized and resourced far-right extremist movement cannot win in the public square. And they can't win what the majority of Americans want, uh, because the majority of Americans believe in democracy and the promise of democracy and people being able to pursue their happiness. And so in that respect, then this movement has to turn to two things. They either have to suppress votes um, which you do through legislation like what um, and practices that Taylor has been on the ground um, seeing really, you know, in, in real life. Or you have to suppress people's hope and, and thinking that it's just sort of doesn't matter and so therefore people don't vote. You have to, you have to suppress votes or they're going to go to court and they're going to go to court to try to attempt to roll back um, rights that they can't win in the public square. That's the only two places a, a movement that doesn't believe in democracy can go. And so whether you have faith in the courts or hope in the courts or not, and I do, um, I, I, I think that we will come through this if we all do what we need to do in this pivotal moment. But whether you have that faith or not, the fight is going to be there. Um, it's it's going to be in a lot of other places too, but it is a front line right now in the battle for democracy. And you can look at what happened last year with Dobbs and look at, you know, Morvey Harper that's before the court now. I mean, you can look what's <laughs> going to happen and it's a front line and we all need to be there. And you don't have to be a lawyer to be there. There are ways to to, to raise your voice and to show your voice, which I think we'll, we'll talk about in the court system and then throughout our, our, our country and, and political process and civic engagement. Barbara Jordan has been described as someone who fought for change within the established institutions. 
How does that, well, first of all, do you agree or disagree with that? And how does that align with the work that you're all doing? I mean, for me, it's, there, there has been this targeted effort to dissuade young people from wanting to be involved in politics, but also to embrace, um, you know, the people they're voting for. And for me, it's, it's been a really big part of getting them to understand how political systems function and how those pieces of legislations that are passed are actually implemented. Um, you know, for me, a big part of it is talking about my personal experiences with, po with policy is I would not have been able to go to college if the American Rescue Plan had not been passed. It paid my tuition for an entire year when I didn't have a job. I didn't even have a bank account. I was able to go to school because of the current administration that we have in place, because of lawmakers from across the country seeing the potential investment that that kind of monumental legislation could have. So telling those kinds of stories and getting people to understand like, hey, there are systems and there are grants and things that you could apply for, that you could benefit from, and making it very clear the successes that are there. I don't agree with the Biden administration on every single thing that they do. I don't agree with them on every single executive order that they pass or every policy that's signed into law. But what I do agree with is that they are not the ones who are trying to make my very existence illegal. They unequivocally support women's rights. They unequivocally support public education. And they've shown that with their legislative record. And to, to highlight to young people how impressive and important that is, to pass the American Rescue Plan, the Chips and Science Act, the first piece of bipartisan gun legislation in a generation to pass the PACT Act in a bipartisan way with a very slim majority. That is, that is generational talent to be able to do that in an administration. And to communicate that to young people is so important because they have taken that kind of knowledge out of schools where they don't understand how those systems function. I went to public school here in Texas from second grade until I graduated in 2020 and 21. I never learned what the governor's job is. I never learned how to vote. I never learned how a bill is passed in the state I live in. I didn't know what a county commissioner was. I didn't know what the lieutenant governor does. And so to now have the position where I can explain to other young people, hey, this is what the lieutenant governor does, but instead of me going on a five minute rant, I'm using a 10 second Beyonce clip on TikTok. <laughs> They're able to understand it and understand that these systems and institutions do have power. And I completely agree with Barbara Jordan. When this country was founded, it was founded on, it was found on the hope and the principles of freedom. Was it equally distributed at the time? No, it wasn't. Um, but something that Celia Israel said on a panel that I watched a couple days ago was, you don't wait for the torch to be passed to you, you take the damn torch. And even though at the time it was written, the Constitution was not something that promised rights to me, it damn well better do it now. And if they're not gonna give us that opportunity, we'll take it. And that's how we've been able to do things like pass the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, which benefited people in this country that have largely been disenfranchised. And so I absolutely agree with her. And I think more people should. And I think young people should understand what's at stake if we don't try to make our voices heard in these institutions.
think, you know, one of the things around Jordan's legacy is she worked within institutions because she knew that she didn't have power and she was focused on how to build power. And power was not a negative word because she was going to build power for people who needed power. And it's something that we all have to think about. Power is going to exist. And it can exist in a movement that doesn't represent the majority of people, that is resourced and coordinated and wants everybody to feel alone and mislead people with misinformation. Or it can exist in me and you and in our communities and in our families. And the way to do that is to build it. And so she did what, and I've written a piece about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think she did the same thing, sort of it's find a way or make one. She worked within institutions because that was, the ins that was what was there to work with. And it's incredibly important to do that now. That's why we have to be in the court. It's why we have to be voting. It's why we have to work within our institutions. And then we also have to appreciate that there's power building that can occur outside of those institutions as well. And that's always been the history of American progress and democracy, is that interplay between change within institutions and change from the outside and understanding that somebody is going to build power. And so is it going to be people that are going to advance the promise of democracy for all people? you can build power in your own communities, or is it going to be sort of a movement that doesn't represent the majority of folks trying to roll us back to a time um, where we were not, um, where we didn't have a promise of democracy and we weren't a democracy? And so I think that's um, how I see that, is I think she did what um, practically she needed to do to get things done, and there's a lot of lessons for that today, both within institutions and, and outside them. Uh, no, I, that's such a good point, Sky. You know, I draw so much inspiration from Barbara Jordan's work on the 1975 expansion of the Voting Rights Act. Um, because, you know, in her time, she was actually quite frustrating to a lot of her colleagues, if you read some of the contemporary news reports, because she was willing, you know, coming from Texas to work with anyone, segregationists, Racist, she could go out and get a drink with anyone and work on legislation with anyone, and it would drive a lot of people insane. Um, and she was only in Congress for just a couple of terms, but the relationships that she built throughout her career, starting in Texas with folks who agreed with her on very little, there wasn't even a bathroom that she could use at the Texas legislature, she used all of that willpower to bring Texas under the 1975 expansion of the Voting Rights Act uh, that also then included language minorities, which expanded the franchise for millions of Americans. And I think when you look at the environment that we're in today, so partisan, you know, you can't really have a conversation without it devolving into Democrat versus Republican and, you know, all of these things. But I think to me, you know, I sort of look at, you know, this work as building a coalition with folks who believe that democracy is important. And I don't mean like who you're voting for, who you're going to vote for. You know, when we're getting back to the bare bones of making sure that we're preserving our democracy for future generations, I think it's about a bit more than that. It's about can I work with this person to make sure that no matter 
who this person is voting for, they can mail in their ballot from their county and vote for whoever they want to and be able to participate um, in a more fuller democracy. And so that inspiration that I draw from her, her being able to, you know, in times that were much more difficult than, you know, the times that we're living in now, being able to work with everyone with her eye on that prize on the horizon um, and, and the impact that that had, um, I think that that's just such a lesson uh, that I continue to sh for sure draw on today. No doom scrolling. No okay. doom scrolling. <laughs> no I, doom scrolling. I love what you said about um, bipartisanship and how things have become so hyperpartisan. And for me, that story is really clear. And on election day, the day before election day, this past cycle, uh, I was flying to Austin and I got in my Uber and I was wearing a Beto shirt. And uh, my Uber driver was like, oh, you, you voted for that guy. And I was like, yeah, I did. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, uh, I don't like him very much. And I was like, oh, this is a 45-minute Uber drive. But, I, <laughs> um, but we started talking, and he, he told me, you know, I'm a lifelong Republican. I've never voted for a Democrat. And I was like, okay, well, why? And then he was like, they're all evil, and they're baby killers. And I was like, no. And then we started talking. We talked the whole time. And by the end of the Uber drive, um, we had come to an agreement which was community college should be free and schools should have trade programs that are funded by the state. And you know, this man was kind of crazy. Um, but like just having that simple conversation, he literally said, you know, I didn't think that there were good Democrats out there because of what he sees on the news. He didn't know who I was, but I mean, he was talking to one hell of a Democrat. Um, but I wish that that kind of happened more often, especially in politics. And I think that Barbara Jordan is a great example of what can happen if you're willing to have those conversations. So what do you say to people who want to be a part of change, want to be a part of the progress that we need, but feel like their voice doesn't matter, like they're not listened to, and like they don't have the power to create impact? I think the biggest thing that we can do, and it seems so small and so obvious, but talking, talking to you, the folks who are in this room, us up here, we are outside of the norm. You would be maybe not shocked to, to realize how little the majority of society is engaged on this very, very important issue. And, you know, I think something, and this is, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I, I like to tell people on the weekends, we would go, we were those weird people going door to door, you know, knocking like, hi, you want to join our church? You want to, like, believe in God? And, you know, I grew up and stuff. But I feel like that sort, that sort of experience, you know, showing up, at, on someone's doorstep and showing how important something is to you. Uh, during your free time, you would be shocked in seeing um, how much an impact that that has on somebody. And I think that if we're having conversations in our communities with our friends, with our families, you know, not long drawn out political arguments, but just common sense things, you know, that do you know that it would be illegal for my friend to come down here and help me register voters here in the state of Texas? Most people hear that and they think that that is insane. And, and most people don't know that. You know, it took me living in a van and realizing how easy it was to get arrested 
registering voters for me to come into the realization of a lot of these things. So I think the biggest thing that we could do is keep having conversations and keep spreading the word. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, everything doesn't have to be an argument. But I think in showing how important it is to you, uh, you could inspire that spark in someone else. And that goes a very long way. I think being intentional, um, it just in terms of there's a lot of things. We think about democracy. We think about voting. But it's also about our communities, raising our kids, libraries, uh, books. I mean, this is all, you know, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. I mean, it's, it's all of it. And so I think being intentional in those moments of, um, you know, when you see something, a story about, um, you know, books being taken off the shelf or um, a teacher being retaliated against or um, a parent being threatened um, by a lawmaker because they're trying to support their kids' um, health care, um, even if that health care is health care uh, that, that certain lawmakers might not, might not agree with. There are ways that you can take that, those personal stories and storytelling is so incredibly important. And we all have these stories. You don't have to be in a van. You don't have to be um, a lawyer or like a famous TikToker um, to have the stories that can really move people around um, around our communities. And I think also just um, realizing that this is the only thing that's ever really changed um, the world and really been able to bring progress is people from all stations of life, from all different places, claiming their own power to, um, to, to represent something different. And so that, that's, you know, my encouragement. We, we see it every day in our work. We get to represent veterans, doctors, voters, teachers, students, social workers. I mean, we represent, you know, folks from all different walks of life. And in this moment, they are um, looking at ways they can make a difference, lend a voice, um, try to push forward. And it's incredibly inspiring. And it, and, it, and it can change things. And it can move things forward. I think understanding that local entities have vast amounts of power is really important. And, you know, I, I am political director at the org, but I'm also an abortion rights activist. And a lot of people don't know that the anti-choice movement started with city councils and state legislators. And they worked uh, from the late 60s all the way up into the 70s, all the way up to now, to, to ban abortion on a national scale. That's, that's the goal they're working towards. And it started at a local level, and they were successful in a lot of ways. I mean, we just saw Roe v. Wade was overturned. Um, and so... When I see that through history, and then I see kind of the parallel of, I was just on a panel with Shannon Watts from Moms Demand Action, and they started locally as well, and they've pushed and been able to curb a lot of these far-right bills that have been put up that hurt people and kill people, honestly. And so for me, it's really important to remind people that every single position has power. It's not just the president or you know the Senate majority leader. It's the fact that the reason why Lizelle Herrera was released from jail where she was arrested for a self-induced uh, miscarriage was because the district attorney decided that they were not going to pursue charges. 
And it's that every single elected office holds vast amounts of power, and that can be from your city council to your county judge. And you don't have to be involved in a presidential election to make a difference. You can get involved with a school board member or with a sheriff who you are particularly passionate about. And just reminding people that, you know, your vote does matter. And we've seen that with countless elections across the country that have been decided by anywhere from a couple hundred to one vote has happened. And I really think it's important for people to remember that their vote is their voice. They have the power to do that, but also they have the power to go tell their city council member, hey, I don't like what you're doing as one of your constituents and you need to change that, which I will be doing in Houston because there are no sidewalks and I'm really tired of Ubering everywhere. (laughs) I agree with that. I want to add that um, about the importance of storytelling, right? Um, I think often people feel like their story, like many, many people have their same story or that their, you know, their story doesn't matter or will be paid attention to or isn't unique. And the, the fact is that it, it is. Um, at Democracy Forward, one of the things we do is we, um, support other organizations in commenting and submitting, um, written comments to the federal agencies. And one thing that is really important during, in that process is the submission of real people's stories. And so we help organizations compile those stories and share them with the organiz- with, with the federal agencies, which are, they're paid attention to. They're used to, um, develop those rules and regulations that, that the federal agencies produce. And so that storytelling is so important. And I know lawmakers too, they, you know, um, I've seen that pipeline of like story to speech on the house floor. So they really, really matter. Um, okay. We're, we have one last question, but before that, anyone who would like to ask a question, we invite you to come to the mic and we will get to that as soon as we're done with this question. Um, Okay, so the work that you all do is really critical and it's hard, but not every win has to be a monumental headline-making victory. So what's one everyday achievable thing that you can do that moves democracy forward? Um, This might not be the correct answer, but for me, I have found especially living in a van, which, yes, it looks very cool on Instagram. It is extremely hard. Um, Taking care of yourself. I feel like to keep the motivation to, as we are literally living through history every day, it's exhausting. Um, And taking care of yourself and, um, you know, spending time with your loved ones is going to give you that energy because it is a lifelong fight, a generational fight that we're going to have to fight every single generation. Um, so that's the biggest advice I can give is take care of yourself every day. I think finding one glimmer of something positive. I mean, we, with some of the fights we fight, you don't get to see the, um, you don't get to see the, uh, um, results, um, for, you know, some time and sometimes they don't work out the way that they should. And so I think like, um, harnessing the, the one thing that's, you know, one thing that's hopeful a day, which can be in the ordinary experiences of day to day life. The fact that, you know, in most places we can still go check out a book and, um, read it and turn it back in. I mean, some of those I end up reflecting on even in my own work because it's those tangible things that that can help, I think, propel us forward. And then also, I think, just asking that question, what is the one thing I can do today? If we all did that, 
um, uh, it would be amazing to see what, what the country would, would look like. For me, it's, you know, my I have three sisters. I'm the youngest of four. And I have five nieces or nephews who are all under the age of 10. God bless my sisters. Um, but just talking to them and knowing that they're going to grow up in the next generation after me, and I cannot in good conscience leave this world a less better place than when I was born into it. And so when my niece calls me, and this has happened, is my niece has called me, and she's been like, Olivia, I saw you on TV. And she's, you know, across the country. And it's really important to me to remember that I'm not just fighting for me. I'm not just fighting for democracy. I'm fighting for my family and protecting them and protecting rights for them or fighting to restore them so they don't have to grow up in the kind of environment that I grow up in um, is incredibly important to me. Awesome. Thank you. Do you want to ask your question? Hey, Dad. Um, I'm not sure if this is working. <laughs> I think they're turning it on. Thank you so much. Amazing. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for such a phenomenal session. Uh, my name is Anna Grace. I'm a co-founder at Stashrun, a Silicon Valley startup. We're working on a new platform for activism for Gen Z to power impact influencers and help them monetize their influence for these really important causes. So my question is a little bit tech-related, but I'm just wondering, uh, for all of you, do you feel like social platforms are aiding or eroding democracy right now? And if you could see them change or evolve in some way, uh, what would that be? I feel very strongly about this, as I should. Um, I think that social media is a tool. You know, it's it's a it's an algorithm. It's a program, and everyone who uses it has to make the decision on whether or not they're going to use it for good or use it for bad. And I think a lot of times we place the blame on technology instead of the people who are operating it. And I think that it's the responsibility of these companies to take charge and make sure that they're regulating and mitigating some of the extremism that has arisen because of this. Um, and as far as development, I think that we need to see more laws and regulation on data privacy. We need to see more on curbing domestic terrorism. Um, and this is kind of off topic, but extremely important to me. Um, children, like family vloggers, that is legal. They are not protected under Hollywood's uh, child labor laws. And uh, I think that it is extremely important to protect children online. And that goes from being a figure or being on the app. As someone who has used social media since I was 13, you should not let your children use social media at 13. And there needs to be more regulation to prevent that from happening. Um, I, I agree in social media being a tool. And I think that uh, there's a lot bad that has come out of it. And I think we're, you know, sort of building this plane of how to manage that as we fly it. Um, but I also think there's been a lot of really good organizing that has come out of social media. You know, I think about back to Ferguson and, and sort of the democratization of um, Americans being able to communicate with each other and talk about what's happening in their communities to really spark a um, resistance that has you know, provoked broad change. Um, so I, I don't, I think that, you know, to keep some of that good, it's worth figuring out how we can mitigate some of the risks. So I love hearing, you know, that that's a project that you guys are working on. Um, I think it's important that we continue to ethically uh, build this space. 
Thank you so much for your question. Yeah. Thank you very much for a very, very good session. One thing that I wanted to understand, how much do you think about and how much should we think about ways that we can figure out how we all agree as opposed to othering people, right? Mm -hmm. I agree with just about nothing that the quote-unquote Republican Party now stands for. But I agree with a lot of the things that people that I know of, right, people that I personally know that have very big problems with the way I look at the world, right? There is a lot that I can find in common with them. And unfortunately, I don't see enough of that on either side, mm -hmm. where people, you know, the idea, you know, and, and I'm gonna say something and I'm sure people are gonna hate it, this idea of cancel culture, oh, you said something 15 years ago, so now you're suddenly a bad person, does so much damage to the very cause that we are trying to fight, and if we could only find a way to end these kinds of things, we would be heard so much better by all the other, by the other 50% of the country. And so I, 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 I'm, I am desperate to find ways to agree more as opposed to this constant fight. I, I, I agree with that. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's a few things to underscore. I mean, one is that I do think the vast majority of people do agree on some of these basic things, right? And so then the question, so promise of democracy, and, rights. I mean, even though there are people that have any number of complex views, for instance, around reproductive health care, we know, and we have known for, for decades, and um, the polling has showed that the majority of people agree that it's a personal matter and not one for politicians, and, and across a range of issues. Um, you know, people agree on good wages. Um, and so I think then the question is, what is it, what is the rhetoric, and what is it that is making that is making that are making things polarized. One of those answers in the work I do, and um, I am not, um, <laughs> I am not a political person. Like we are um, a legal organization that represents folks pro bono and um, and does a lot of public education work. So I leave all the, you know, we, we don't do political work. But one of the things that um, we have found is that there has been a real concerted effort to make people think that they don't agree. Um, as much as they do. And um, some of that is being, um, a lot of that is being, um, um, and I'm not saying that it's the only the only source of it, but there is a lot of it that's coming from this web of very far-right extremism that sort of wants to make things look like it's polarized. Because if you make things look like, well, half the people think this way and half people think this way, if you only represent... <laughs> 10 or 15% of the people, you get a whole lot more power when you sort of make things polarized. So I think that what you're saying is incredibly important and that there is a lot of common ground. I think we've seen that on some of the um, some of the issues in, in the midterms on ballot initiatives and things when, um, when issues were really put to people. We see that in the courts and the coalitions that we build. We have institutions that, um, you know, that, that come together around certain issues that might not be together on every issue or might not even identify on the same side of the spectrum. So I very much um, appreciate what, what you're saying and think a lot of it, and I think this is a place we can channel Barbara Jordan here, but a lot of it is focusing on the basics of what we know and what unites people and then really trying to call out what she did, um, you know, call out the forces that are seeking to paint another picture because we know it's not accurate 
but yet that's what a lot of this messaging from, from far-right extreme groups and others are, 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 um, are leading people to believe. Thank you for your question. This is really high. Um, my name is Candace Buford. I'm an author of young adult fiction and middle grade fiction. And there's a pretty concerted effort to ban my book from Texas and Florida schools. Um, a lot of my peers have had their books banned. And we, while you were talking about the importance of storytelling and reaching young people and helping us all find our power um, and our voice, how do we combat this new age of book banning and how do we have our voices heard? I mean, I'm, it's a tough question. It's hard, you know, uh, when, when you're swimming upstream against all these things that are coming down, I think something I'm profoundly proud of is, um, you know, the banned book clubs that we kind of see popping up in different places of people reading those kinds of books. But I think honestly, like doing what you're doing right now and saying, I'm an author and my book is being banned from schools. Well, I look at you and I'm like, why are they banning her book from schools? She just looks like a very nice person. I think that's a great example of- book about kneeling. Oh. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, danger, danger. I'll also put a plug in. If you go to democracyforward.org, we are working with a lot of communities, including in Texas and Florida, with parents and teachers um, to fight censorship and to fight this extremism. You'll see more from us on that soon. I think we have some bookmarks we can give you after, anti-censorship bookmarks if anybody wants them. But I think this is an area, and we've recently heard it, to go with the gentleman's prior question, this is an area where like the vast majority of people think that books should be available. I mean, this is not a controversial proposition, but it's being made to be a controversial proposition because of this sort of web of very resourced um, extremism. And we have to stand up and show up. And that's everybody in their individual lives, um, not just people who are working at an advocacy organization or on the school board. And so um, uh, it's, it's, it's very terrifying what's happening. And um, I'm sure very painful for um, you, but also for parents that want their kids to get a good education for kids, for teachers. We know it's one of the leading causes now of teacher burnout. And, um, and so I uh, would encourage folks to go to democracyforward.org and learn more about what we're doing there. And just a quick note, I also think there's some value and some power in you and your fellow authors showing up at some of these school board meetings with your books and, you know, asking them and calling their buff, bluff to their face, you know, what exactly in this book um, is the issue? You know, there are parents there, there are students there. Um, so, you know, echoing everything that, that Sky and Olivia said. Um, but I, I, I would agree that the censorship, uh, you know, organizing at any level that we can to, to stop is very important. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Okay, last question, and then we're a little bit over time, so we'll make this one a little bit quicker. Uh, hi, I'm Adrian Laverne. Uh, I advocate for higher education in Washington State, trying to make community college free. And uh, my question is, I've been inside these institutions of policy for a while, and they're very powerful, but I want to know, how can those of us outside of those institutions, electricians, teachers, how can we sort of harness those institutions uh, to spread democracy, 
Unions. Unions. The history of this country, major movements have happened through labor unions, and I know that there are a lot of really great uh, teacher unions out there, the National um, Education Association, AFT, uh, getting involved in unionizing your workplace, and if your school is not unionized, uh, you should look into that and make that happen. I think that's honestly the best intersection of getting things done. Great answer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, okay, before we wrap up, I just want to encourage you all to please use our QR code, visit our website, and find out how you can participate in the fight for democracy. And please use our hashtag, worth the fight, um, as you share your thoughts on today's panel. Thank you all so much for being here.